The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. start off with a question this morning. The question is this, when you reach moments of crisis and desperation in your life, what do you do? When you reach moments of crisis and desperation in your life, what do you do? Well, people handle that differently, right? Some people try to fix it themselves. You, you may be like super type A and you're like, if I just do X, Y, Z, you drop a plan and you're like, if I do X, Y, Z, then I'll be fine. I can work my way through this situation. Some people like just totally melt down and can't do that. And so they may run to someone in their life that they really trust to help them through that situation. Some people, when they reach moments of crisis, they just break down and they turn to substances to help them through that situation. And it may look like this, like I had a really rough day today I just need to get home and have a glass of wine to get me through this day, right? And so because we struggle in life, we we turn to certain things to get through those situations. Here's the the statement that I want to pose this morning as we go through this text here in a moment. Where we turn in moments of desperation is where our hope is. When life really hits hard and, and, and you face some kind of trial and, and, and things you don't really know where to turn and it seems like hope may be lost, where we turn in those moments is where our hope is. And so if we're that type A personality that, hey, I'm going to fix this situation myself, then your hope is in yourself, right? Or, or if you turn to a certain person in your life every time you run into a certain situation, then, then maybe your hope is in that person to get you through that. So where we turn in those moments of desperation is where our hope is. Um, Several years ago, we found out that Jackson, our second oldest, had asthma. And uh, it was allergy-induced asthma is what we found out. And uh, I got a little picture of him up there. Uh, we, We found out that he had asthma because he started running fever and was struggling to kind of breathe and so we took him to his doctor and uh immediately they were like he needs to go straight to the hospital next door and they immediately admitted him and it was kind of like the first point in my life where it was like a real trial right like when you're younger there's some things that you face that are hard but this was like like really terrifying because uh my sister-in-law worked at the hospital that we were at and we were in I didn't even really realize this because everything kind of happened so fast, but we were in um, the, the child area for uh, ICU, and, and they had him hooked up to this breathing machine that was something that she had never seen be used in her entire tenure there, so it was, it was pretty intense, and I could see it on her face, the worry, and, and for her to be worried caused me to be worried because I know nothing about medical stuff, and obviously she does, and so I, I'm, I'm getting kind of worried, and Beck and I were taking turns staying at the hospital, and it's, it, he just wasn't getting better. It was just progressively getting worse, and they were having to crank up this little oxygen thing and give him more oxygen. And, and uh, one night, 
uh, I was staying there by myself with him, and all of a sudden, I'm kind of dazed, you know, you kind of go in and out of sleep when you're in hospital. I'm kind of in that dazed state, and all of a sudden, all these nurses run in the room. And you can just see the, the fear and intensity in their eyes of, of there's something going on. And I remember in that moment, like, being absolutely terrified because what can I do? I have no ability to, to fix this situation. I have no person that I know that I can call to fix this situation. There's nothing in that moment that I can do. They were talking about his heart, thinking that there was some kind of issue with his heart. They called the ER doctor up to look at him. And I remember that moment, like, there's nothing, it's a moment of desperation. There's nothing else you can do but pray. And, like, I, I grew up in, in a household where, like, I saw my dad cry three times, right? So men don't cry, right? You're a man, you don't cry. I was, like, weeping with all these people in the room, and, like, I don't know what to do, and I'm just fall and just start praying, because that's the only thing I know to do. And I'm praying that, that God would, would heal my son and not allow um, something really bad to happen to him because I, I, obviously something bad is happening and I don't know what's going on. And they, uh, they, the, the ER doctor comes and looks at him and, and determines that, that he's fine. They, they bump up the oxygen a little bit and I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. I just prayed that, that God would help him get better. It was like in that moment of crisis, God was the only person I could turn to for hope because he was the only one that I knew that could resolve the situation. And so when we face moments in life like that where we don't know who to turn to or where to turn, God is the one that we run to because he alone is worthy of our hope in those situations. And in our text this morning, it's a pretty dire situation. We're going to read it here in just a second, but it's a pretty, it feels hopeless for, for the apostles and, and the disciples at this time. Peter is in big trouble at this point. The church is being persecuted. And what the church does in this moment of desperation is what we should all do in moments of desperation. They fall to their knees in prayer and ask for God to work a miracle. So let's read Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church. All right, so... When we read scripture, we see the name Herod a lot, right? And, and so it can be confusing. You may think it's the same guy as you read through, through scripture. It's not the same guy. There's, there's actually a, a, a few of them that, that are part of this Herodian rule in, in this time. And, and this is the grandson of King Herod who was, who was there when Jesus was born and killed all the firstborns. Yeah, so this is his grandson. So that, that King Herod that, that was killed all the firstborns, he, he was like a ruthless guy. And, and, and was afraid of losing his, his rule over his, his little area. And, and he, in fact, was so afraid of that that, that once his son got a little older and, and there was a little friction there, he killed his son to, to maintain his throne. And so now he's got his grandson who, who, is, who is now taking over because he's gone. 
His grandson is now taking over and is every bit as ruthless and every bit is afraid of losing his authority in his, in his kingdom. And so that's where we're at. We've got this guy that, that is ruling with a, you know, he's ruling with a strong, you know, iron fist and, and, and he's got this tightrope that he's trying to walk. He's, he's, he wants to appease Rome because that's his authority, but he also has this really complicated job of maintaining peace. And so he wants to maintain peace with the Jews in Israel. And so he's, he, he's trying to maintain this peace with, with this group of people. He's also trying to make, look good in, in, in the eyes of Rome. And so he's walking this tightrope. And so he realizes if I persecute Christians, then the Jews, they love it. And so that's what he starts to do. He really starts to, to hammer the, 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 the Christians. If he persecutes the Christians, the Jews love it. And so um, let's, let's jump back in here. It says, uh, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. All right, so this is kind of like a real moment in the church, in church history, where, where this apostle loses his life. This isn't James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, uh, the brother of John. Uh, and so it says, when he saw that, it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter too. So here's the plan. He, he, he sees, hey, they really liked it when I killed that James guy. And so now I'm going to go get their, their ringleader, Peter, and I'm going to kill him too. Right? And so it's very much expected that, that Peter's going to face the same conclusion that James does. It says he proceeded to arrest Peter during the festival of unleavened bread. So the festival of unleavened bread is the time after Passover, seven days after Passover. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. And this is intense. He's got two guards standing outside the prison and then he's got two guards inside chained to Peter to make sure that he doesn't get away. They do not want Peter to get away, right? Intending to bring him out to the people after Passover. It was unholy for him to, to execute someone during this time, so he was waiting the seven days. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. So this is a crisis moment. you got this ruthless guy who's getting kicks out of killing Christians. It's political for him, and, and he's, he's bent on making sure that Peter loses his life. And he's... Peter's in this prison with two guards on the outside and two chained to him. There's no, like, Ocean's Eleven going to break this dude out, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's hopeless. Verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial that very night. So this is the last second. There's, there, this is it. He's, he's about to bring him out the next day put him on trial, and execute him. It says, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping. Now, I don't know about y'all. I'm a good sleeper. I, I can, when I'm out, I'm out. Like, when I go to bed, they're like, thank God that Becca's a light sleeper because our kids would have died as infants if they would have cried for hunger. I would have never woken up because I'm, once I'm out, I'm a, it's like a rock. Peter here is sleeping. 
As much as I sleep like that, there's no way I'm sleeping in this situation, right? Like the next day he's supposed to die and he's chained to two guards in a prison. Like it's unfathomable to me that Peter is sleeping at this point. It says he's sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. That wasn't enough to wake Peter up, right? Striking Peter in the side, he woke him up and said, quick, get up. I remember as a kid, like, my dad having to, like, punch me in the side to wake me up sometimes. Like, get up, right? So this is what happens with Peter. He gets, he gets hit in the side by this angel. Quick, get up. And the chains fall off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him. And put, your, put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him. And follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know that, the angel, uh, that what the angel did was really happening. But he thought he was seeing a vision. So in his mind, he's like... Am I dreaming? What is going on here? This is crazy. Verse 10, And after they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. All these people expected Peter to die. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they expected. But God had different plans. Verse 12. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. Come on, Rhoda, you had one job, right? Like, just open the door and let the man in. Like, he gets, he, she gets so excited that, that she's been in there, right? She's in there praying with this church, and, and, and they're, they're expecting something to happen. And Rhoda hears this knock. She goes to see who it is, and there's what they've been praying for right there. Have you ever had a moment like that where God does something in your life, and you're, like, just so amazed that God did it that you even forget maybe to take a second to really realize the, the thing that he's done? This is what happened, is Rhoda's so excited, she opens, the, she, she comes to the gate, she sees it's Peter, and instead of opening the gate to let him in, she runs back, and she's like, hey, Peter's here. Can you imagine Peter's frustration? He's like, hey, I don't know, I just got out of jail, I need to get off these streets, like, let me in, right? Um... Verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told her. They've been praying for this all night. <laughs> and, and when it happens, they're like, Rhoda, come on. Rhoda's always just telling these tall tales. She don't know what she's talking about. Like, calm down, Rhoda. It's, you, you're probably just dreaming. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. And so here's their response. They say, it's his angel. It's just his angel. So this is not. This is something that a, a lot of early Jews believed. They believed in in like guardian angels, and so they really believe like his guardian angel is just wandering around because Peter's dead at this point, and and so the guardian angel has no job anymore, and so he's just lonely and walking around. Like you just saw his guardian angel, you didn't see Peter. Calm down. How crazy is that? Like like you're praying for God to do something, God does it, and and you rationalizing your head. It's, it, it makes a lot more sense that that. His guardian angels just roaming around the streets. Peter, however, kept on knocking. And when they opened and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. 
Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. No duh, right? Like he's escaped that crazy time, and of course they're buzzing. Verse 19, after Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So this is a powerful story of God intervening because the church is praying, right? The church faces this, this moment of hopelessness where there's no other option. There's, there's, there's no way to get, to get Peter out of this situation other than God performing a miracle. And God acts, and he does this amazing thing that, that, that blows them away. They, they weren't even, they were, they were praying for it, but, but when it happens, it was so unbelievable that they were like, no, it's just a guardian angel. The church is praying for God to do a miracle, and it's important for us to hope and pray for God to do the miraculous in our life. That when we face moments of uncertainty and trial and struggle, that, that we trust that God will move in those situations, that, that he is who we place our hope in. Rather than placing our hope in ourselves to fix a situation or for other people in our life to do it or for the government to fix our problem, we go to the throne of God and ask him to move in our life. And so this morning, we're going to look at, from this text, three reasons why we should place our hope in God. Three reasons why we should place our hope in God. And I'm going to give you a bonus one, too, when we get to the end. But number one is God's power is perfect. God's power is perfect. Uh, we just got back, uh, not this past Friday, but the Friday before, from a trip to Tennessee. And as we're driving around, I kind of come to this conclusion in my mind, like, it feels like atheism is really prevalent in, in, you know, major urban areas where you go to New York and you look at the marvels of what man has created, right? You look at these giant buildings and you're like, man, man is awesome. But you go to somewhere like the Smoky Mountains and you're like, oh my gosh, look what God has created. To the point to where you almost like buckle in your knees a little bit, like just in awe. And I, took a, I brought a picture of that too. I mean, look at that. When I look at that and I was there, I was like, why do we live in Southeast Texas? <laughs> but then we went to a restaurant and I realized that's why we go to South, we live in Southeast Texas. <laughs> the food is terrible. Uh, but that is beautiful, right? And, and, and when I see that, I'm amazed at the power of God, that God literally formed that just with his words. He just spoke that into existence. He said, let it be, and there it was. That's the God that we serve. That's the God that we pray to. That's, that's the God who says, come to me, all you weary, and I'll give you rest. Everything in this story seems hopeless. You've got James dead. He's, the, he's, he's this first apostle that's lost his life. You've got Herod, who is ruthless and on a mission to persecute the church to build this, 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 his own kingdom, and, and you have these guards sitting there, four every shift, two at the door, two chained to Peter. But even in that hopeless situation, God is still in control. God is still all-powerful and still able to move and work in this incredibly hopeless situation. God is bigger than any circumstance. 
Matthew 19, Jesus said this. He looks at the crowd and he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are, impo- are, all things are possible. Listen, I know we go through some crazy things in life. When you look at, at, at certain circumstances in your life and, and things are overwhelming sometimes, our quick first thought is this is a hopeless situation. I just have to live with this. This just is what it is. But listen, we serve a God who spoke those mountains into existence. He said, let it be, and they, there they were. He has immense power to move and make anything happen in your life. Anything. So if your marriage seems hopeless, listen, God has the power to restore that. If you have a child who is wayward and and you feel like there's no hope for that child, listen, God is powerful enough to call them back. If you have a family member who you've, who's lost and you, you, you pray for them and you pray that God would, would move in their heart, God is powerful enough to save them. He can do anything. He can accomplish anything because his power is perfect. Number two, God's timing is perfect. I don't know about y'all, but I hate to wait for stuff. Like we live in this culture now where you got Amazon Prime and you can get things in two days and sometimes I'm like, you know what, it's worth the $5 I'll pay for overnight, right? Because I hate to wait for stuff. I remember as a kid, my parents would uh, work really hard to hide Christmas presents from us. And because they knew, like, I don't like to wait. I, I want to find out now. What am I getting? And so I was, I was the kid that snooped and I would dig in the closets and I, I would dig everywhere. One year, my parents hid, I was getting a, a 22, my very first gun. They hid it at my grandparents' house. My grandpa had this shop out beside their house and they hid it upstairs in the attic of that shop. I found it. <laughs> That's how good I was. I hate waiting for stuff. I, I, want it, I want it now, right? Can you imagine praying and waiting for seven days? As the church, your, your, your leader, Peter, who's, who's been this pivotal person and, and that God's been using to lead this church and, and, and to grow it, and he's in this hopeless situation. Can you imagine being in this, this room and praying for, for f- seven days that, that God would move and do something? Can you imagine how overwhelming that may have been? But all through this, you can see that God is working in the timing, right? This is the time of unleavened bread. Seven days after Passover, it's sacred, and so execution is inappropriate. So Herod has to wait a few days. And after all this week, it's the night before execution. It's getting tight on time for God to work, but yet he moves just in the nick of time and does something miraculous. It reminds me of the story of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament where they pray for this child and God promises this child and, and, and the Bible says that they become you know, you know, too old to bear a child at this point physically and, and, and in their minds all hope is lost like this isn't happening and then God works and does a miracle and gives them Isaac God's timing is, is perfect 
And in our life, when, when we're faced with these tr- struggles and we're worried that God is going to act and, and, and questioning it, where's, where's he at in this moment, we have to wait and trust that his timing is perfect. Second Peter says this, chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. Listen, in our mind, we have like this really narrow view of how things are working in our life. We see just the here and the now, right? But God has this this aerial view, and he sees all of what's going on, and he's orchestrating it according to his will and his glory, and we have to trust that his timing is perfect. I remember uh, when this COVID stuff first hit, and Julian and I were talking like, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this situation? What, are we going to go fully online? Are we going to do parking lot services? What are we going to do? And we're, we're, we're trying to make decisions, but, but the reality was we had very little data to make decisions. And the little bit of data that we had literally changed from like hour to hour. I remember, in fact, one time it was like 3 o'clock and we were like, all right, let's make a video and announce what we're going to do this Sunday. And so we film the video, we throw, we throw it online, and literally as soon as it hits online, the governor's like, no, nope, we're not doing that. And so we were like, okay, well, let's go back and film another video, all right? And so we're trying to make decisions, but, but it, we had such little data. And I remember being incredibly frustrated having to make decisions with such little data. But the God that we serve has all the data, right? He, he's, he's got this aerial view of everything that's going on, and he can see past, future, present. He can see all things and he knows all things and there's nothing that he's unaware of. And so when things hit and we're starting to question where's God at in this situation, we need to trust that his plan is best and that his timing is best because, because he has this, this knowledge that we don't have. We just see the here and the now and we worry about our own situation. But if we could see how God sees it, then we would see the bigger picture. God's timing is perfect. His love is perfect. Think about who this is that's in prison for a second. This is Peter, right? Peter denied Christ three times. Jesus could have been like, man, you enjoy that prison cell. You denied me three times. I'm done with you, right? That's probably what Peter deserved. God loved Peter. And he intervened in his life because he loved Peter. 1 John 4, 9 says this, this is how God showed his love among us. That's a past tense word. God showed his love towards us. This has already been done. That he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God still loved Peter enough to intervene in his life. God loved this church enough to, to answer their prayers, and God cares about you. God cares about you, and he cares about your prayer life. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my life I feel like I may be praying, and, and it's like, man, God's got a lot going on, and I don't know that he really is going to listen to my prayer or, or really have time to deal with this. But, but that's not the God that we serve. The God that we served is very interested in who you are as a person. He's very interested in what you are praying and what you are asking for. And he cares about you. 
He loves you regardless of what you've done. He's already proven his love for you because he put his son on a cross to pay the punishment of your sin. Scripture says that God demonstrates his love for us and that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. He cares about you. And he wants you to trust him so he can work in your life. And so in our prayers, we should ask. Not only should we ask, but we should ask big and expect God to do crazy stuff. Um, we were at uh, Calvary for eight years, and I remember um, we were... We were at this point in, in, in where, where this property next door to Calvary Beaumont became available. It's Tuscany Park in Beaumont. Some of you may know where that's at. It's like an office complex. And so our pastor really felt like God was going to give that to him. And I was like, I don't think you understand how like, this works. Like, that costs money. And real estate is money. And like, business people don't just give people stuff. So that's not how this is going to work. And I remember thinking, like, this is crazy. Like, they're not just going to give it to you. And so he, he literally called our entire staff into a meeting. And he said, I want us to pray that God, for God to give this property to us. And I remember thinking, man, this would be crazy if God gave us a $7 million property in the middle of Dallin Street in Beaumont. That would, be in, that would just be unbelievable. And so all of our staff which it was like 20 or 30 pastoral staff people, we, we, we all got in this room and we began to pray, each one of us, that God would give us this property. And I remember in that, that moment, like, being just in awe of the faith of some of these people that, that God would, he would act and he would give this property to them. They, I mean, they, they really believed it and it encouraged my faith and encouraged me to really believe like God's going to do this. And so we prayed that day and then we all kind of went our separate ways. And I remember the next day they were meeting with the real estate guy that owned the property. And they were going to straight up just ask this dude to give him the, give them the property. And I remember the next time we met, we got together and he told us what happened. And so they asked him and, um, and he was like, oh, I don't know about, I don't know about that. And he was like, well, maybe we can do it for this price. And it was something different than, than what it was listed for. And, uh, and so I was kind of like, man, like we all got down. We prayed for that. I was really hoping that God was going to do some miraculous thing. Well, what ended up happening was they looked at, they had this one lease and, and the thing that was still there, and they had to honor the lease. And that one lease paid for more than what they paid for the building. So they got a building not only for free, but they got paid for the building to, to, to buy the building. And so once that lease is up, the property is theirs completely, and, and, and they got paid to, to receive it. And so not only did God give them the property, but, but he paid them. He said, I'm going to give it to you, but I'm going to pay you to receive it too. And so it was like, man, God answered this prayer in a crazy huge way, and it was unbelievable that God would work in, in, in that way. And so when, when we pray, we ask, we should ask big, and we should be ready. The church here, they didn't believe it was Peter, right? They, their, their answer to what was going on was, this is, this is just his ghost. Peter's already gone, and now his... Guardian angels just walking around and 
doesn't really know what to do. He's lonely and doesn't have any, any job now, so he's just wandering around the, the streets. When, when we ask, we ask big. We need to be ready because God is going to move. He's going to move in our lives. And so here's the bonus point as we wrap this up. God's plan is perfect. God's plan is perfect. And so I want to ask you this question. What about James? Like, was the church like, you know what? James is cool and all, but he'd be all right if he, we lose him. But Peter, can't lose Peter. Peter's really valuable to us. Obviously not, right? Obviously they were praying for James too, that God would free James and that the execution for James wouldn't happen either. But God allowed that to happen. And so sometimes we can look at that and be like, what do I do with that? What do I do with the fact that God allowed James to die, but he rescued Peter from jail? We often view death as this horrible, unwanted outcome, but death for the believer is just the finish line before the reward. Death for the believer is this victorious moment where we are face-to-face with our Creator and He receives us with open arms. And so for, for James, it may have been unwanted for some of the church people, but for James, it was, it was victory. God freed him. He restored him in that moment. And so God loved James and acted on his behalf as, as well by calling him home, and the outcome was, is still all based on God's glory and his plan. So for God's plan, it was for James to die. It was God's plan for Peter to live, but God was glorified in and through it all. And so know that God may not act how you want him to act when you go to him in prayer, but he still loves you, and his plan is perfect. So what sustained Peter? Why was he asleep? That's crazy, right? That's the craziest part of the story to me is that Peter's asleep. And here is why I think he's asleep. First Peter 1, he writes this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result and praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter found peace in the promises of Christ because he already found Christ to be faithful in the promise of salvation. Listen, God's already worked in your life, right? You've already experienced salvation. If you're a believer here this morning, God has already spoken to your heart. He's already changed you and made you into a new new creation. And that is something that is real in your life that you can point back to and know God was faithful in my life to save me. And so when I face trials and struggles in life, I know that God is going to be faithful in those too, whether they go in my favor or not in my favor, because God is glorified in all things. Whenever Jackson was little, he uh, was learning to swim. And uh, we spent like a million dollars on swim lessons. 
and he still didn't know how to swim. And, uh, and so I was trying, we were, we, we, one of the benefits of being a youth pastor is you get to go to camp every summer and your kids, like the kids always go with us. And so uh, we were during some free time and I brought the kids to the pool and uh, I'm trying to get Jackson to trust me enough to jump from the diving board in my hands. And at first he's not having it. Like he's doing that thing where you get to the edge and he's like looking over and he's like, come this way a little bit, right? Like, you remember that with your kids? Like, come, come closer, come closer. And he like wants to touch me to make sure that I'm, you know, close. And then he kind of gets down and then he would like sit on the edge and like just kind of plop in the water right next to me because he like totally didn't trust that I was going to catch him, I guess. Um, and, and, and so he did that. And then finally he got the courage after a couple of those to let me be back a little bit further, right? And then he jumped and I caught him. And then by the end of the swim time, he was like running from the back fence as far as he could and just leaping to my arms because it took just a few times for him to start to trust, right? So he realized I was faithful here, right? And then he let me, you know, he let me go back a little bit further. I was faithful there. And then he let me go back to the point to where, like, I wasn't even looking and he was jumping to me sometimes. <laughs> and, and, and because he just trusted in that moment, right? Because I was faithful in those moments, he became more trusting, right? And, and, and listen, God has been faithful to you. God has been faithful to you. He, he, he made you into a new creation, saved you from your sin, and because of that, we can trust him in all things. You can trust him with your marriage. You can trust him with your children. You can trust him with your job. You can trust him with COVID-19. You can trust him with all things because he loves you and because his plan and his will is perfect in your life. And even if it doesn't work the way that you think it works, it's still the best for you and for him. Peter trusted God's plan regardless of where it led because he had already experienced God's redemptive work in his life. And he knew, like Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Peter knew, look, this could go one of two ways. This is, this, this is either going to go, God's going to free me and I'm going to live, or he's not and I'm going to go die and I'm going to go spend eternity with him. And for Peter, it was the same philosophy is Paul. If I live, I'm going to continue to preach Christ. I'm going to continue to reach people for his glory, and I'm going to continue to live my life for him. But if I die, man, that's gain. At that point, I get to live in eternity with him forever. When everything seems overwhelming, what sustains us? It's the promises of Christ. And how can we trust? Because the fulfilled promise of our salvation. God's already saved you. He's already fulfilled that promise in your life. And so when you're faced with trials and sufferings, you can look at those with boldness and know that God's in control. Paul writes in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul looked at life like, man, I'm suffering and I'm going through some crazy stuff. I'm in prison. I'm being beaten for, for what I'm doing. But in comparison with the being in the presence of the glory of God, it's nothing. 
What I'm enduring is nothing. And so as you face trials in life, I get that in the moment they feel overwhelming and they feel like they're, they're incredibly uh, present in that moment. But, but in comparison with the glory of God and being in his presence one day, that little trial is nothing compared to the riches of his glory. So if you're going through something, know that God is in control and trust his timing. He alone is worthy of your hope. Listen, you, you have no control in this life. Those of us who are fixers, we have no control. Especially in moments of crisis. When Jackson was laying in that hospital bed, there was nothing that I could do. God is in control. And we should trust him. And he alone is the perfect hope. He is the one who is has the perfect power, the perfect timing, the perfect love, and the perfect plan. And we can rest in that. And we can find peace in that. And so the challenge this morning is to put your hope in Jesus. Because he's already fulfilled his promise of salvation in your life. And he's worthy of that hope. He's our perfect hope. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? If you're a believer here this morning and you've put your faith and trust in Christ and you're going through something, I want to challenge you to remember back how God intervened in your life and saved you from the sin that separated you from him and brought redemption in your life so that you can live a life of purpose and meaning and fulfillment in relationship with him. And I want to challenge you to use that memory and, and that, that experience in your life to always bring you back to him in moments of crisis. There's nothing else in this life worthy of your hope. Jesus alone is worthy of that hope. He's already proven it to you with your salvation, and so run to him in moments of crisis. When life hits hard and it seems like it's a hopeless situation, Dude, like this church, fall to your knees before a holy God and ask him to intervene in that situation. Ask big because he loves you. But then trust that his decision in that moment is what's best for you. Trust that his plan is perfect. Trust that, that his, his knowledge and his power and, and who he is as a person and, and what he wants to do in your life, that it's perfect. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you haven't put your faith and trust this morning, God wants to do a miracle in your life. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon and talked about how God steps across enemy lines to reveal himself to you. And then he shines this light of truth of sin in your life and says, here's the stuff that separates you from me. And then in that moment, you have an option to surrender. And so this morning, if you don't know Jesus and God is speaking to your heart in this moment, revealing sin in your life, and you want to repent and turn from that, 
And we would love to have that conversation of how you can come to know Jesus, what it means to have a relationship with Christ. And so here in a moment, as Julian sings, I'm going to come down here in the front, and I would love to have that conversation with you. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.